On last week's episode about Caroline B. Cooney's Both Sides of Time, we discussed a fictional time-traveling narrative in which a teenager is transported from 1995 to 1895 and somehow manages to get herself stuck in a love triangle between the two centuries. On this week's episode, we tackle a different kind of time travel, the kind that happens when you have the opportunity to really get into the mind of a real historical figure through a fictionalized but highly researched diary crafted from that figure's perspective. In this case, we are talking about the infamous Marie Antoinette, who was the last queen of France and was executed by guillotine in 1793 after being accused of high treason. You probably know about her in relation to the phrase, let them eat cake. But before all of that happened, Marie Antoinette, known to her loved ones as Antonia, was just the youngest member of a large Austrian royal family who never thought that she would actually be expected to rule. When her older sisters, for a variety of reasons, become unfit candidates for the kinds of politically advantageous marriages that their mother is working to arrange for them, things change, and Antonia is suddenly thrust into preparations to marry the future king of France, Louis-Auguste, at the age of 14. In this, the fourth installment of the beloved Royal Diary series, Marie Antoinette, Princess of Versailles by Catherine Lasky, we had the chance to join Antonia on this journey to prepare for marriage, as well as on the actual journey from her birthplace in Austria to her new home in France. When she gets there, it's a bumpy ride, full of etiquette and politics and judgments and lots and lots of gambling. On this episode, my guests and I take a close look at this Marie Antoinette Royal Diary. We talk about the many disturbing elements of royal marriages and relationships during this time period. We try to reconcile the version of Antonia we get in this book with the terrible Marie Antoinette we learned about in history class. We try to get to the root of the drama between Antonia and Madame du Barry, the mistress of the French king. I had a lot of fun revisiting this series, which I loved as a kid, and I am so thankful to my guest for joining me. Today's guest is Angela Lashbrook, who writes about consumer tech and health for One Zero, Vice, Refinery29, and other outlets. She blogs about books at angelalashbrook.medium.com and is an excellent Twitter follow over at Lemon Sand. You can also find Angela very sporadically and unpredictably, her words, not mine, on Bookstagram at The Angela Shelf. If you aren't already, I would love to invite you to follow SSR on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast or The SSR Podcast Community. It is an especially exciting week for SSR, because when this episode drops, we will be just two days away from the official kickoff for the SSR Book Club. Our April book selections are The Giver and You Should See Me in a Crown. You should expect to see me sharing about this a lot on social media, and I'm pretty sure you're going to want to get involved, especially since it's free. Join the SSR Book Club by tapping the link in SSR's Instagram bio or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub. I would also like to take a moment here to say a big thank you to the volunteer book club leaders who will be facilitating these discussions. I feel like I never run out of people to thank in this community, and here's another shout out to all the Patreon sponsors tuning into episode 139. If you are not familiar with Patreon, it's basically a platform that connects independent creators, like me, with fans of the content they create, like you. As an independent podcast, SSR is not backed by a larger organization, and it is quite literally a one-woman show. Thanks to Patreon, fans of the podcast can commit just a few dollars a month to the show in exchange for very cool exclusive rewards like monthly Patreon parties, reading recap videos, bonus episodes, SSR merch, weekly voice notes, newsletters, and more. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar per month. Learn more at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. 
If you're a big audiobook fan, don't forget to support independent bookstores by shopping through Libro FM. The audiobooks you can get from Libro FM are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. There's really no downside. In fact, there's an extra upside. SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Audiobooks are a great way to make a little extra progress on your TBR list. I don't know about you, but my TBR list needs all the help it can get. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Angela. Welcome to SSR. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a Royal Diaries Day. It is our first ever Royal Diaries Day on SSR. We've done one of the Dear America books, but we are finally diving into Royal Diaries. How are we feeling about it? Why did you pick this book? Tell me everything. Well, I really loved princesses as a kid, and I feel like I've been hearing a lot just like royal news. There's a bunch of the Princess Diana. I watched The Crown recently, and I've been listening to other podcasts about Marie Antoinette, so I wanted to revisit my childhood experience with her. Yeah, so it's worth noting we are recording on March 12th, so there is quite a bit of royal stuff in the news. We're about a week out from the big Oprah interview, and as I was reading this book, I like couldn't help but think about that and about Meghan Markle's experience as part of the royal family. I don't know how much we'll touch on that over the course of this conversation, but I will let listeners know that it was something that kind of informed my experience reading Marie Antoinette, Princess of Versailles, which was the fourth installment in the Royal Diaries series. This one came out in 2000 with a much better cover than the one that I have. The best thing about these books at the time were they like they had these beautiful covers. They were paper overboard. They had the ribbon bookmarks. They had these portraits of the princesses on them. And now I have this like lame paperback with uh, just this like really glamorous looking beautiful young girl, but she looks like a Barbie and not like a real child. And it makes me sad because I miss my original copy. But anyway, all that to say, as I was reading this book, I was thinking a lot about the Meghan Markle interview and just about like royalty and what these families can do to the people who are in them. So if I don't talk about that explicitly over the course of the interview, I'll just, I'll say like, I think that that probably biased me a bit toward the book as I was reading it. I mean, I don't know if it's biased. I think it's just new insight, just the way that being in these institutions really cr- corrupts you like emotionally psychologically it's everything it may, it forces you to become a new person who maybe you don't want to be and I think you know that's clear in many modern um, examples of royalty that we are familiar with but also really comes through I think in this book even though it's for kids 
Yeah, I think that's true. And I do think I read this when I was a kid. I read a lot of the Royal Diaries books. I pulled up a list on Wikipedia and there were 20 in total. And I definitely read like close to half of them. And I would assume that I read this one. Like this seems like one that I would have been drawn to. And I couldn't help but wonder like how much of the like insidiousness of this institution I was able to pick up on as I was reading it as a kid. Like, I think I probably was able to understand like, hmm, this is sort of weird that she's getting married to this boy that she has never even seen. It's weird that she's 13 and getting married to begin with. It's weird that like, she's going to be married by proxy and her brother is going to be there instead of her husband. Like how crazy. But I think there's just like so many layers here of politics and of history. And yeah, as I've learned more information about how even like contemporary monarchies work, I'm like, ooh, like this is very unsettling to read, especially because like we're dealing with a 13 year old girl. Yeah, I think I didn't pick up on it as much at the time. I think what I did notice when I was, you know, 12 or whatever, when I read this is it's not quite as glamorous as you would think it would be. Like there's scenes of people peeing in the hall of mirrors, like just straight up. <laughs> like it's disgusting. It's a gross place and the palace was cold and everybody stank. It's not like a Disney movie. And I think the book does a pretty good job of making that clear even though I pick up a lot more now on like how unhappy she was and how she had to like force herself to stay positive. Yeah, I weirdly remember learning in like my European history class in high school that Versailles was like pretty gross. I remember that thing about like people peeing like all over the building. Um, And I would imagine that I remember that because that's like a crazy thing that just it's one of those like little nuggets that your history teacher shares and you're like, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to get that out of my brain. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's such a veneer to Versailles. I think even in the way that many of us learned about it when we were younger, it's so glamorous and you see the, the paintings of it and you hear about like being part of the court and how fabulous it was. But they were spending a lot of money on things that weren't important and they could not accommodate. They didn't have the infrastructure to accommodate like this grandeur that they were building. They they couldn't like find enough places for people to wash themselves and to go to the bathroom. And so, yeah, it was really beautiful and sparkly and shiny, but it was actually like really nasty. And it is kind of interesting to watch Marie Antoinette or Antonia as we come to know her in the book, like process all of this because... I just think like seeing anything through the eyes of a kid is always really interesting because it's like kids, you can't bullshit a kid. Like kids are like, oh, it's pretty, but like people are peeing everywhere. Gross. You know, there's no, there's no filter of like, hmm, I wonder why, like this isn't this interesting. It's like, no, this just sucks. Like I hate it. It smells. And so I think that that was really well done. I'm curious, like, did you know a lot about Marie Antoinette as a kid? Like, or even now, what is your understanding of her sort of historically speaking? Because I'll say all that I really remember is like, let them eat cake, which it seems dubious as to whether or not she even said that. And then of course, the Kirsten Dunst movie. And I will say that like, about 30 pages into reading this book, I immediately went to Netflix and Hulu. And I was like, okay, where can I find this movie? Because I need to watch it again. Weirdly, it's not on any of the streaming services right now, but I might just rent it because I feel like I need to like keep going into this rabbit hole deeper. But yeah, I feel like I I don't know that much about her or at least what I learned about her in those high school European history classes. It didn't really stick as much as the fun fact about people peeing in Versailles. I think I had like a decent amount of knowledge about the period for like a 12 year old, which isn't saying much. 
uh, just because I was really interested and I all, and I'm, I think I read like a, a number of other historical fiction novels around that time. Um, but more recently I have been like, you're wrong about has a couple of podcasts about Marie Antoinette, um, Noble Blood, the Dana Schwartz podcast. Uh, she does a couple of podcasts about her. And then I also in preparing for this interview, I listened to um, a BBC podcast about her. The thing that I really wanted to figure out because everybody kept saying something different is about the dog, Schnitzel. Schnitzel. I loved Schnitzel. So I had originally heard that she didn't get to keep him and that um, he was like cruelly ripped from her arms at that lake house thing. And he was, but the book doesn't depict that as if maybe it's like too traumatizing or something for the kid to read that. I don't know. I love that that's the one thing that she was like, you know what? This is too much. And I, I sort of have to agree with her. Like, if one thing would have put me over the edge, it would have been like, no, you, you can't even bring your dog with you. Well, she does get him back. She she gets so distraught that they, like, bring him to her later. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so that's where the confusion was. Okay. The other thing that really struck me is that they don't talk about, like, the sex aspect of their relationship, which was hugely important to their court life. Like, no mention of it at all. Yeah, I had a lot of questions about that as I was reading this. So listeners, we never have any reference to like any sort of intimate physical contact between Antonia and her new husband, Louis Auguste, I guess we'll just call him Louis. And obviously, like I assume that to a degree, that's because the author Catherine Lasky was writing toward a a younger audience. And she probably was trying to keep it pretty clean, especially in the 90s when she was writing this book. But I, of course, had questions as to like, how would this really work? And then in the epilogue, the author writes about how they didn't have children for, I think, like seven or eight years until after they were married. So then I was thinking like, okay, is it customary in these families where like, yeah, we're going to marry our kids off super young, but we won't like, we won't expect them to have sex or like consummate the marriage until later. Angela is shaking her head. And so it sounds as though maybe I'm being a little bit too generous with that. It's not customary. No, they... From what I understand, they like have their marriage night and everybody like gathers around and like makes all these body jokes and stuff. And then they like, they like wait outside the door. And then in the morning, you know, you come back to like check the sheets um, to make sure. And obviously she never got pregnant and they never consummated their marriage for many years. And it's like, they don't really know why historically, like there's a lot of different theories, but it was a scandal. And it like nearly destroyed Marie Antoinette at the very beginning. So that's why I was like shocked that some mention of it it at like, he didn't kiss me or, you know, like something like that. Well, she does. There is one moment in the book where it seems like he's almost going to kiss her and she seems like really excited about it. And then he stops and it's not really a big deal. Like she doesn't linger on it very much. But now that I'm thinking about it was is that like a core part of the Kirsten Dunst movie? Like she's sitting around, it's been a long time, so I don't remember, I'll have to watch. But if I'm not mistaken, I think she's sort of like waiting around for him and he's like not interested in her. So I'll have to watch and confirm. But it is interesting because you would think that, you know, there's this huge focus on how these relationships and marriages are brokering different kinds of like alliances between countries. And as far as I understand it, like I would think that there's like a consummation element of that that would sort of be necessary in order for these deals to be like finalized. So I'm glad that at least Marie Antoinette seems to have escaped it, although many others didn't. But it is interesting to me. Like I I am curious. I want to read more about like maybe what actually happened, although it sounds like there's not that much information out there. 
yeah, they, they think maybe he wasn't interested in her, so he was just like, nah, or he had some kind of a problem, like physical problem that prevented him. But I do, I do think that if this had been written now, she may have been able to address it at least a little bit more directly than in the 90s. I think so too. I think that there would have been some some interior thought about like, I wonder what will be expected of me. You know, I think we don't even get that in the book, which I think is interesting. There are some references to conversations that Antonia is having with her mother before the wedding and her mom's like, this is what it means to be married. And I assume that like we're meant to expect that there's some sort of like a sex talk happening there. But I think if the book were written even a couple of years after 2000, there might be more explicit references to like, I'm nervous. Like, what is he going to expect that I do? I hope I get my own room. Like in this book, it's like, no, she just gets her own room. And there's like not even a conversation about it. And I was relieved because I kept, I almost had like one eye closed the whole time. And I was like, oh no, oh no. Like, is there going to be a weird interaction? So as a reader, as an adult reader, like getting into the head of this 13 year old, I was happy to avoid that. But of course, like practically speaking, I had a lot of questions about how this would have actually operated in the real world. But yeah, just the lack of privacy. I mean, Angela, you just described sort of what these traditions look like even for a marriage night, for a wedding night. The thing that like totally blew my mind, and I don't know why it did after reading the whole book, but in the epilogue, the author talks about how like 150 people were there the day that Marie Antoinette gave birth to her first child. And that seems to have been like the last public royal birth that happened. I mean, there are, we do read in the book about how like every royal baby was delivered in this one particular bed that Marie Antoinette is now expected to sleep in, which like kind of freaks me out to begin with. And there's like this gallery around the top with like a gold railing that everybody just like stands around and watches. But then like, so we've now spent 200 pages in the head of Marie Antoinette. And now we find out, okay, like seven or eight years later, she's going to like push out her first child and everybody's going to be watching her. And there's something about like, I felt like I'd established this intimate relationship with her by the time we got to the epilogue. And so it was so much more upsetting, the lack of privacy. Especially interesting that that was the last one because she must've been like, no, like I'm setting some boundaries here. And you do kind of get the idea that like, I think she's really well painted her personality in the book. She's very like light and fun and charming. And like, she's not super serious girl, but it's very clear that there's some things happening here that she doesn't like, and she will end up changing. And that's one of them. And I like thinking about her standing up for herself. Like, I don't know. She, she touched my heart a little bit, even though obviously like she uh, has serious political and historical issues. (laughs) Yeah, I had a hard time processing all of it, especially, again, I feel like I keep harping on the epilogue, but I hadn't done any sort of like historical brushing up before I started the book because I kind of wanted to approach it with a fresh slate mentally about who this girl is supposed to be because when we meet her, like none of this shit has happened yet. Like she has not made this like crazy mark on European history. She has not scandalized the nation of France. She has not sparked a revolution. Like she has not been a wildly irresponsible leader, all of these things. She's just a 13-year-old who's like being told what to do with her life. But by the time we got to the epilogue and I was reminded of what ended up happening and like how terrible she and her husband turned out to be as rulers, I was like, but wait, she seems so... Well, innocent, first of all, because she is. She's just this young girl who's like, okay, I guess I have to go to France and get married now. But we're also seeing her 
interacting with her niece and interacting with her dog schnitzel who she loves and teaching her husband like how to play because he's never been allowed to play before and she's riding horses and like doing all of these things so it was really hard to reconcile that for me with what she became and what she ended up symbolizing yeah I think the author does a really good job of like setting that stuff up because she was renowned for her love for children she ended up adopting a bunch of them like orphans off the street she would just be like all right like you'll be my kid now and she also it's clear from the very beginning how uneducated she is like she has they did not think that this was going to happen to her like they they didn't think she was going to marry the you know dauphin of of france they thought she was going to marry, I don't know, some local Austrian noble. So they didn't prepare her. And I think that's part of the problem with why she ended up being who she became. Like she had no idea. She she didn't barely could read. She does get better and you see her improve. Like you see her language and her writing improve throughout the course of the book. And I thought that was a really interesting stylistic choice on the part of the author. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about her quote, education um, and her preparation, which is, I would say like the first third of the book is really focused on what she's learning, how they're preparing her for her marriage, for her move to France and the things that they're focusing on. And to your point, Angela, there's not any education in the way that we would necessarily like define education. She's given this diary to practice writing because she can barely write. There's expectations that she has to learn to write French and to read French because she's moving to France. Although she can speak it, I think, from the beginning, she hasn't mastered a lot of the like basic skills that you would expect a child to master who has been given like essentially 24-7 tutoring. Like she can be taught anything and they have just not chosen to invest in very practical things. Instead, they spend time teaching her how to gamble and play cards. And there's a lot of etiquette lessons which drive her crazy there's some horseback riding um, and that's like very political too in terms of like whether she's riding astride or side saddle and it's like very controversial when she wants to ride astride. There's some art lessons, I believe, and like a little bit of music and because she lives in Austria, like her mom's very into music and I did think it was kind of cool how there's this running thread where like her mom is super serious and like definitely takes no shit, but she has a soft spot for music and she's like, there's no good music outside of Vienna. Like you need to learn to enjoy it here. I, I liked moments like that with her mom, but they're putting so much pressure on her to learn to be a certain kind of girl before she can go to France, which I think is wild in itself. But also when you then realize that like Louis has not had to prepare for any of it, like she shows up there and he's like, hey, what's up? <laughs> yeah, he's really like they left him in his little room with his locks and like just hoped for the best, which is, I mean, his grandpa was like a adept ruler. Like you could say what you want about, you know, how well he managed social issues in his country, but at least he seemed to know what he was doing. Louis Auguste, like struggling, obviously. Struggling has no social skills. And he doesn't even know anything about Antonia. And not that any of this should surprise us, obviously, because this is 18th century Europe. And obviously, like all of the pressure is placed on the girl and not on her betrothed. But like, she's put all this time into trying to figure out what he's into. And hilariously, she finds out that he's obsessed with locks, which is like so weird, but also kind of cute that that's like his thing is he really enjoys refurbishing old locks and like fixing locks. And so she wants to learn how to do locksmithing, all very sort of like 
reasonable things that like if you are even if you're going to date somebody like you want to learn what 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 are you interested in what can we talk about like what activities can we do together and her her like staff and her court and her mom they really are preparing her to like take on this role as his wife although she's not really sure what that's supposed to look like and he knows nothing about her he doesn't know anything about where she's coming from and there's a part of me that like is so mad at him but it's really not his fault and as we get to know him he's really like he's not very smart he's sort of a dud and like boring but he's sweet and when he's given the opportunity I do think that he tries to be a good husband as good of a husband as you can be when you're like 14 years old but it just made me sad that like her entire life is being devoted to preparing to take on these roles, the symbolic role of being the leader of France at some point, and also even this like emotional role as his partner. And there's no expectation of reciprocity there. Yeah, he doesn't. It, it is really interesting to see that he just kind of expects every everybody to do everything for him. Not maliciously. It's just like that's the way... It's always been done. And it becomes clearer towards the end of the book that he really does appreciate her um, and maybe love her, you know, and they do go on to have like kind of a warm relationship if if not, you know, passionate. Um, and you can kind of see how that works. But yeah, it's like they were both just massively un- unprepared. And it's sad when you know how it all works out. I do think also it's like they spend so much time focusing on her etiquette skills. Like you, like you say, it's like 50 pages just of etiquette and gambling and how to ride a horse and what to eat and how to eat and nothing about history of France or about like the economy or anything that a ruler might actually need to know. Exactly. And like, also let's talk about the gambling. Like, why do we need to know gambling? And the fact that etiquette and gambling continues to be in the same sentence. And look, I'm not judging anybody who enjoys gambling. I think that like, that's a thing that a lot of people are into. Not my thing. Obviously, moderation is always a good move with things like that. So it's not that I like, don't understand why people enjoy gambling. I'm sure especially right now after being trapped in their homes for months, people would like love to go to Vegas and like hang out. But I mean, this is a 12 year old girl who like one of her one of the things she seems to be best at and one of the things that she seems to like have been trained the most in is how to gamble and like it's just very um it's hard for me to wrap my head around how that would be one of the primary sort of qualifications for her to be an appropriate choice for a future king would be that she like knows how to play cards well like so much so that when her governess dies her mother brings in this, I don't know if like her official role is as a governess or like there's so many different like tiers of of courtiers and like different people that work for these royals. So I'm not even going to pretend that I know exactly how all of this lines up, but her mother hires this other woman to come and sort of like look after Antonia. And we find out that like it was sort of a test, like her mom brought her in so that Antonia could like figure out that she cheats at cards. And then her mom's like, oh, great, you figured it out, like mission accomplished. I mean, how weird is that, that that's how you're supposed to prepare, A, to be married, B, to leave your home forever, and C, to become a major monarch? Yeah, that really disturbed me because they call her Countess Sauerkraut. I don't even remember her real name. And she is like never regarded as matching up to the previous governess. And they make a big deal out of how ugly she is and like 
the mom will be like, did you notice her wart with the hair? Like, isn't that crazy that she has that wart? Ha 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 ha. And I just, that really, like, I don't know. I know it's common for the period to have like evil characters be ugly or fat or whatever, but it's just that, that disturbed me. I didn't like that at all. Yeah. It's hard for us to read that now. I think knowing what we know about like the depth to which appearance politics have impacted the way that we we move through the world. And I think a lot of us have spent time like trying to rewire some of that in our brains. And like, you're a writer too. Like as creators, we try really hard to like not succumb to like those kinds of assumptions and those kinds of tropes in the ways that we communicate with people and in the ways that we create content. And um, that takes time, which is crazy. Like it, it never should have had to be something that we overcame, but because of the way that the content we consumed, whether it was written or filmed or whatever, the way that that was constructed, I think when we were younger, was that like, oh, somebody who is quote, like ugly is always bad. And that means something about a person's character. It takes it takes time to be like, no, that's not it. Yeah, and, and she does that multiple times throughout the book. Like Louis is, you know, described as being like fat and you know not super cute which maybe she would have actually felt that way because like he was just a normal dude he wasn't like a hottie that <laughs> she was hoping for yeah <laughs> um yeah so that that frustrated me and but the gambling thing is really crazy because they don't have anything else to do it's like there's their lives have no stakes at all this is where they get their um like dopamine hit is by mm-hmm. winning and losing huge amounts of money in their bedrooms at their little card tables that's true they like hang out in their bedrooms it's so it's so weird because i i don't know i'm like oh you guys just like hang out in your like royal quarters all the time and gamble it's just an interesting visual um there are so many characters in her life like pre-france that i wanted to touch on another one that i wanted to discuss is her older sister elizabeth who i thought was really interesting and tragic so elizabeth is her older sister who was really beautiful and sort of had the whole world at her feet. I think the implication was that she was actually going to be like taking Antonia's place and like becoming potentially the queen of France or like getting the best marriage. You know, she had all of these prospects for like a really promising sort of advantageous marriage. And then she gets smallpox, which is like very prevalent at this time in history. And a few of Antonia's siblings actually had smallpox and died of smallpox. And Elizabeth didn't die, but it affected her face. Her face is now covered in scars from her experience with smallpox, which grossly makes her like unmarriageable. Nobody wants her. Um, And so Antonia has sort of like risen through the ranks. They're like, okay, great. You're the next step to marry the future king of France. But Elizabeth like seems to kind of have the best situation. I actually pulled out one quote that I wanted to mention because while we as readers are like, oh, how sad for Elizabeth. Like she just has to walk around in a veil because nobody wants to see her. And that just must suck. Like she doesn't get to go anywhere. But instead, Antonia says, what I saw was a woman completely free, free of mama, free of Austria, free of empires and husbands and filled only with her own music and love of God. If people, especially women, knew the secret of Elizabeth, she would be the most envied woman in the empire, in Europe, in the world. Mm -hmm. That really struck me too. It's like she dodged a bullet, basically. I mean, she would have probably been better at being queen than than Antonia, just because she had a better education. And you can tell when she's talking, 
with like when they're having conversations, she's very well spoken and intelligent. But yeah, it's like it really worked out for her. She doesn't even have to be. She's a nun, right? Yeah. Like, uh, she doesn't even have to be there. Like she goes there like once a month. So she's just really rich and has no responsibilities like, and no husband. Yeah, no husband. It's interesting because I feel like you know, we're set up as like, oh, being a nun is the worst thing you can be. Like who would want to be a nun? But Elizabeth seems really happy. And then Antonia has another aunt that she visits on her journey between Austria and France, who's like living the life, like having the best time. She sort of just like hangs out outside and makes really delicious food and spends a lot of time like thinking and reading and has amazing insights about the world. And it's like, oh, like maybe being a nun like wouldn't be so bad. Yeah, I mean, if you're this level, if you're the, like, if you come from nobility and you become a nun, I imagine it's a different situation than if you're just, like, an everyday nun. But, yeah, they have it. They have it so much better than Antonia ends up having it, really. I thought Elizabeth was fascinating, and I liked that Antonia was able to turn to her for advice. Like, Elizabeth just, like, gets it. Like, she's able to sort of pinpoint what's going on with their mom. And she gives Antonia a lot of good advice about sort of how to manage a lot of the dynamics. It's really sad because Antonia was really close to her older sister, her other older sister. I think there are, like, 18 kids. Her name is Caroline, and she was married off a few years earlier. I don't remember exactly where she ended up going, but Antonia found this letter that their mother had written to Caroline, who basically was like, I don't want you talking to Antonia anymore because Antonia had been so upset that Caroline was leaving and their mother was like upset that she made like a stink about it essentially. And so she broke up their relationship and this was months after Antonia didn't understand like why she wasn't hearing back from her older sister. She was writing all of these letters that never got sent or that never got responses. And so Elizabeth is sort of like her final lifeline. It seems kind of like a strange decision because I think she goes to Spain. And I might be wrong, but like maintaining a good relationship with like high up in Spain would work out for Austria and for France. Like, so I don't really understand the decision making there. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I wanted to talk a little bit more about their mom too, because I thought she was fascinating. On one hand, obviously drives me crazy. Like give your kids some space. (laughs) um why are you making your daughter like learn to gamble and teaching her no life skills why are you sending her off to France at 13 years old with no real sense of like what to do when she gets there Antonia has this moment with her early on where her mom's like basically talking shit about the women in Versailles and Antonia's like well if you hate it there so much like why are you sending me (laughs) like why do you think this is such a good idea So I have all of these feelings. And of course, like also bearing in mind that this is just the context that they live in. This is what you do. You broker these kinds of marriages. But at the same time, I think it's kind of cool that we're seeing a strong female monarch in this book in this particular way. Because growing up, I feel like most of the depictions that I saw and read of queens and princesses it was not this. It was like getting waited on all the time. It was very little responsibility. And Antonia's dad passed away years ago. And also like he was not technically like the heir to any throne. Like her mom is the one who technically has all of the power in terms of like inheritance. And so her mom's kind of a badass. Like she works constantly. She's like tireless at trying to make all kinds of deals to further the interests of Austria. And I just, I kind of thought it was cool. Yeah, um, she she was incredible. Like, she had like 13 kids. 
And all the while, she was ruling the Austrian Empire alone, basically. I don't even know. It's like, I can barely concentrate on what I'm going to eat for dinner. I don't even know how you would have that many children trying to manage all of those educations, their eventual marriages, managing a household, and managing an empire. You have to be a very special person. I mean, she clearly made a mistake in um, not preparing Antonia. Antonia should have been better educated just in case. And they just never even considered her because she was the youngest. So it was like, nothing will ever become of her, but it did. And that possibly doomed her. Um, So big, big failure on the part of Mama Austria. Mama Austria. But I appreciated that Antonia saw how hard her mom was working too. Like I thought that was pretty cool that Antonia is like observing all the things that her mom is doing, which actually sort of begs the question, like, didn't you see any of your own responsibilities coming? Like you see that your mom is like working herself into the ground. Why did it surprise you that like being a queen was going to be hard? Like I don't, it seems like maybe there's a disconnect there, but also, you know, due to the lack of education probably. But yeah, I thought that the mom was just an interesting character and and that politics of marriage in this time period were so much bigger than this one woman. So I don't really want to like villainize her. This was the world that she was like born into and like she sort of just has to make the best of it. And like if every other empire is making smart marriage decisions and she can't be the only one who's not, like she sort of has to keep up with everybody else and try to marry her children off to like really advantageous people. But I I do think like, I mean, we could probably talk for hours just about how weird and creepy and terrible and just stressful all of this marriage stuff is like not only does she have to figure out how to broker the marriage to begin with, but then they're like literally sitting around waiting for the official proposal to come through. And there are weeks and weeks and weeks that go by and they don't hear anything from Versailles. And so there are these concerns that maybe it's not going to happen. And then it just feels like it's constantly at risk. And Antonia is like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do? Because also like she can't communicate with anybody. Like this is a time period where like the best she could do as far as even knowing what her future husband was going to look like was to wait for a literal oil painting to arrive. <laughs> yeah. Which is crazy. I think it's really impressive how Antonia nevertheless maintains like a pretty positive attitude throughout the whole thing. Like she is just relentlessly like – I mean, she, it's not like she's always happy because she, there are moments of real concern and anxiety for her, but generally speaking, she's like a very um, lighthearted person. And I, I, that makes some of the tension feel less difficult to swallow, I guess, like just knowing everything that she's going through. I also think that her relationship with her mother, I don't know if I would have been able to forgive my mom for acting in the ways that, you know, what what was her name? What is the mom's name? Like I think it's Marie Therese or Ter- Teresa Maria Teresa or something. Maria Teresa, yeah. It's like she was the youngest kid and was basically forgotten. And nevertheless, Antonia loves her mom. They go waiting. There's this waiting scene that's like really sweet, and and she's like, "Wow, my mom wanted to wait with me. Like I can't believe it. What fun we had." So I really liked the the depiction of forgiveness in there relationship. And I think also if you're like a 12-year-old girl who's starting to feel frustrated with your own mother, it's it's nice to see tension resolve um, in this story. Well, and there's an interesting thing that happens like as things become increasingly official with their proposal, 
the dynamics of the relationship between Antonia and her mother change substantially because the mother starts to see her as an equal. Like there's a whole passage where Antonia is kind of trying to figure out like, well, why is mom being so nice to me? I think actually it had to do with this waiting scene where they go waiting together. And it was like the first time her mom ever sort of like let go in her presence and like just had fun. And it occurs to Antonia that like, oh, that's because I am also becoming a monarch. And like, she thinks that it's okay now for me to see her just having fun because like, like it's almost like a game recognizes game kind of thing. Like, okay, we're equals now. And so you, we can have fun together, which is just, it's so twisted that like that was, those are the steps that had to happen in order for Antonia to see this side of her mom. But it, it makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to see like a, like a tiger mom uh, have her moment of like relaxation with her daughter. But you're right. It, it, it is interesting to see them like start to uh, become equals and eventually after Maria Theresa dies, I think Austria and France go to war. So it doesn't even, <laughs> the, the relationship doesn't even end up working out forever for very long. What was all of this even for? <laughs> right, exactly. What a bummer. So the politics do not end after the engagement goes through. Definitely not. Madame du Barry. Oh, let's get into Madame du Barry. So Madame du Barry is the king's mistress, which I don't think I really like picked up on right away. It's not really stated explicitly. We see that the king is buying her all of these fancy gifts. And like, she's just very much in favor with the king. And she and Antonia get off on a not such a great start. Yeah, it it's one of the things that I liked the least about the book, actually, because it's very classist in how they describe Madame de Berry. And whether or not she actually would have felt that way, I don't know if it's necessary to depict it so uncritically in this book. And it is very uncritical until maybe the very, very end. Like the way they describe her, I noticed as we sat at the table that at the far end, there was a somewhat coarse looking young woman Take away her powdered hair and her many jewels, and she would have had this look of the street about her. And it's like immediately she just sets out to hate this woman mm-hmm. for no real reason at all, besides the fact that she looks poor. And I don't even think she probably looked poor. I don't think any of these people looked poor. <laughs> she's the, <laughs> she's the king's mistress. Like, what would that mean to have the look of the street about you? She doesn't give any, the author doesn't give any detail. So you don't really know what that means. Yeah. And I think to your point, like there, there's not really any basis for this animosity. And it was weird because I was like thinking through that whole war between the two of them as I was just like processing the reading experience and like trying to figure out how to capture it before you and I spoke. And I'm like, I don't really even understand what happened. Like they just, they immediately didn't like each other. And I guess- if I put in context the fact that like Madame Duberry is probably not that much older than Antonia, not that it matters, but like just in terms of picturing what's actually going on, we have a 13 year old who is new in town, like the ultimate new girl in school. And there's a lot of judgment around the court about her period. It seems like a lot of people just like think she's trash. Like they make up these really mean rhymes about her calling her a dog, which is disgusting. So she's like navigating all of that. She's trying to figure out what her relationship with her husband is supposed to be, which is like really 
overwhelming for a literal child. And then there's this woman who I think she maybe just doesn't understand why she's supposed to respect her. Not that that makes it okay, but it's like, okay, there's this sort of random woman around and the king really likes her and I'm supposed to respect her, but I don't really know why and nobody's respecting me and people are giving me a hard time. And so it almost seems as though like Madame Dubarry was the outlet for Antonia's frustration and like she was the only person that Antonia couldn't figure out why she had to like be nice to. Everybody else sort of has a clear role in her life and she's been like prepared to deal with them. And nobody was like, okay, the king probably has a mistress and this is how you're supposed to react to her. That could be like a total misread, but I think that's sort of how I had to try to work it out in my head in order to understand what was really going on between these two young women. Yeah. I was confused about it too. And because yet, as you say, it's like, there's no clear reason for why there's this animosity between them other than how Madame DuBerry looks. Also in the book, and I might be, might be misremembering this, but everybody gossips about the fact that she's the king's mistress, but that was an official position with a salary, like every king until Louis August has an official mistress. So it wouldn't really have been that shocking for her to exist to the court. And I feel like if I remember correctly, she's kind of presented as being like this shocking anomaly. and She wouldn't have been. Interesting. Yeah, I don't think I realized that. So maybe that was like from your other readings. Um, But that puts it into context a lot. I wonder if it was like a cultural difference too. Like maybe that wasn't something that they did in Austria. I'm sure that there are some like religious differences between the two countries and some like moralistic differences between the two countries. And we of course are getting this sense of Versailles as this culture of grandeur and like just people just being gluttonous and money being spent on things that maybe the Austrian royalty wouldn't necessarily deem to be appropriate. And so maybe we're meant to believe that Antonia has some judgment about the fact that like, this is like an official thing that is apparently okay. And maybe they just don't like each other, but, but she basically just like doesn't talk to her. Like she blows her off at all of these social functions and it causes her to kind of be caught in the middle of this conflict. Like most of her advisors are telling her, you should probably just like nip this in the bud, go talk to Madame Dubarry. She is the king's mistress and you have to be nice to her. But then there are a couple of other people who are like, no, hold your ground. Like there are a couple of her like ladies in waiting, I think, who kind of love the fact that she's doing what she wants, which I thought was interesting, like her having to figure out where she wanted to to go on that spectrum and how she wanted to handle all of this. Just the pressure of having to like make these kinds of decisions when you're 13 years old and like knowing what's at stake because she's getting letters from her mother And like her mom's like, you got to be nice to her. Like this is becoming a huge state issue. Yeah. um, The idea of navigating court politics when you're, when you barely even know who you are is terrifying. She does end up doing it. She does a pretty good job at the end. She has almost everybody under her thumb in the court by the end. Can we talk about the last, that last uh, scene? Oh yeah. Because... This is what made me wonder if we are supposed to uh, be critical of how Marie Antoinette treats Madame du Barry. Because she says here, like they have some kind of fight or whatever. And Marie Antoinette says, 
she knew that she was the victor only of the moment and that I, Marie Antoinette, would become the queen of the century. And that's the last, that's the last, that's where the book ends. So are we supposed to understand like, oh yeah, you're going to be the queen of the century with your head rolling down like the, you know, the plank? Like, <laughs> like clearly it doesn't work out for you. You are not really the victor in the end. I don't know. That's what, that was the only way I was able to like reconcile her bad treatment of Madame de Berry. Yeah. I felt like that last page, it was almost like she was coming into her own because there's a, there's a, much is made of like what um, Mary Antoinette is wearing for this interaction because Madame du Berry is like covered in jewelry and she's like just looking her best. And Mary Antoinette just kind of like shows up in a nice dress, but she, she keeps it super simple. And she says, I needed no jewels. A silly girl needs jewels, but I am a girl no longer. Um, and then there's a few more paragraphs. And then the book ends on the line that you just referenced. And so there's a part of that last scene that I feel is really powerful and that it's, it's this transition between Antonia and Marie Antoinette. Like she's coming into her own. She's starting to make her own decisions. She's starting to understand how she wants to carry herself as the future ruler of this country and, and of this like grand court. But I also felt like it was this transition from like the sweet girl that I'd gotten to know and love who I couldn't imagine turning into the like just this terror of Marie Antoinette that we've all learned about to the terror <laughs> that we've all learned about. And it seemed to me that like, you know, she's sort of shitting on the fact that like Madame Dubarry like wishes that she had some real claim to the throne because, you know, she she's consorting with the king, but she's not the queen. Like she doesn't have any status out of her relationship with the king. She gets nice things, but like I'm sure Antonia has some assumptions about like I'm sure she wishes that this was, you know, more a more legit situation and Antonia has like she's she's there. She it's legal. She's going to be the queen. And so I do think that there's part of this where she's like, I understand what all of this is for. That I'm miserable. Like I'm having a really hard time adjusting. And this conflict with Madame Dubarry is really hard. But I sort of see like she has her eye on the prize. Like I ha I I've got it. Like I'm going to be the queen. This woman is never going to have anything on me. And so like let her enjoy whatever's going on with her right now because history will like prove that I win. And the irony is, of course, that it, it doesn't like she it didn't really go so well. But I just think she it's she's she's getting a little bit hardened by all of this. Yeah, you see it happen. You see and, and she she talks about it very explicitly at certain points where she feels like, you know, she's having to put on this mask and then she is gradually becoming the mask. And I did think her self-awareness was uh striking especially since her personality is not presented as being particularly um, introspective or intellectual. So I, I liked that. But yeah, the end is very much like sort of, <laughs> she thinks she's gonna, it's all gonna work out. And it, yeah, it's just not. I don't know what happens to Madame de Berry. I honestly don't remember. <laughs> maybe terrible things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of an ironic kind of foreshadowing. Like right. you will be the queen of the century, but not for a good reason. <laughs> she has the dream also, uh, like about her, like, like her doll, like falls off the table and loses her head or something like that. She's like, Oh, it made me feel a little uneasy. <laughs> yeah. So there is some foreshadowing throughout the book too, which was, I wonder if most kids pick up on that. Yeah. I bet the author had fun with that dream. On the whole, how did this rereading experience hold up with your memories of this book from when you were a kid? Mostly it held up. There are some significant issues, which we discussed, 
but I had fun reading it. And I also just like learning about this time period. I think she was just such a fascinating character. So I liked diving back into her childhood. Yeah, I think it's also interesting in this case, because like, we have to separate like, what are we being critical of here? Are we being critical of the book? Are we being critical of the system that the book is documenting? Because as far as we know, like the author did a ton of research in order to write this diary written by the young Marie Antoinette. And so the book itself is true. Like all of this mm-hmm. is true. I just think in this case, it's maybe more about like we're, we've as adults come into a different degree of awareness about what this book is really revealing about a period in history that I think it can so easily be viewed as glamorous. And I certainly as a kid saw more glamour while I did understand that there was some bad stuff going on. And now when I read it, I'm like, that ratio has definitely changed. So I think for me, the experience between reading it as a kid and reading it as an adult is different in terms of the way that I view the subject matter, not so much the way that I view like the book itself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about how the book is written I don't read a lot of middle grade anymore, so I'm curious what you think about this, but it's kind of slow and not a lot necessarily is like, it's not moving at a clip, you know, it's just like spending a lot of time with Marie Antoinette doing really boring stuff. Um, And I kind of like, I feel like that respects your young reader to think that they don't need a ton of plot. They will read a character driven novel. And that's what this is. It's a character-driven novel. I really liked that. I think that's probably true. And the fact that not much happens is a function of the diary format. I will say that I was like, okay, I could have used a couple less entries about her like riding the horse and just like sharing her experiences with her riding instructor, for example. But generally, like I do think that this is the sort of slow reading that I enjoyed as a kid just because you're really getting into a character's head and I loved diary style books when I was a kid and I bet that that was part of it like it was just nice to experience life through somebody else's eyes so even though now I'm like okay I have like 18 books to be reading right now so like can we cut to the part where you go to France and get married and all this falls apart (laughs) but I do think that like there's a method to that madness and there's a reason that these kinds of books were so successful this was a spinoff of the Dear America series I think what's extra cool about it is that it's not America centric. Like we're getting, we're getting to experience life in other countries, uh, which is really cool. But there were a lot of books in these series, and there was also My America was another one of them. And then I think there's one called My Name Is America. These are all diary books. People love them, and I think they were all pretty slow. So it works. I just when I think of like YA, it's like one of the things that they say is that you do want to have like kind of a lot of quick pace. Um, And that's just clearly, you don't necessarily need that for younger readers. Right. There's all those school stories that we read when we were middle, middle schoolers or younger. And it's like, what happens in school? Not much. You're just going to school and like interacting with different people and dealing with teachers. And when I read those kinds of school stories for the podcast now, I'm like, oh, not much is happening, but it is fun to be reminded of these interactions. And that I guess is very comforting to young readers, like that this is what everybody's dealing with. Other than... Marie Antoinette, what have you been reading lately, Angela, that you would recommend to our listeners? So um, there are a couple of books uh, that I would recommend. One would be Mary H.K. Choi's Yoke, which was came out a couple weeks ago, and it's a really beautiful YA novel about two sisters, and one of them gets sick and how that changes their relationship. Um, the other one would be What Comes After by Joanne Tompkins about a community in um, Washington and what happens after uh, there's a murder that like 
breaks apart the the families that live there. Just two very different, very beautiful, emotional books. Well, I will have to check those out and I will include links to both of them in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to Marie Antoinette and all of the reading that I did about the book before we jumped on to our recording today. Angela, thank you so much for taking the time. I will include links to your social media and some of your work in the show notes for this episode as well. Just been so fun chatting with you. And uh, yeah, I have just so many thoughts about the Royals right now and I'm still processing all of it, but I just might need to read some more Royal Diaries to get to the bottom of it. I did get another one. The Elizabeth one. I definitely read that one. I think that was my favorite. Mm-hmm, me too. Well, you'll have to let me know how it goes. And uh, it's going to be at the top of my list for an SSR episode in the future for sure. But thank you so much for inspiring me to get back into the series. And it's been so fun. Thank you so much. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.